Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Help-seeking trends among children and young people are rapidly changing. Generation Z and Alpha have their own unique preferences and expectations for help-seeking, particularly in relation to their mental health and emotional well-being. In recent years, Australia's National Helpline for Children and Young People, Kids Helpline, has seen seismic shifts in trends and patterns of help-seeking by children and young people unlike ever seen before in its 30-year history. Joining me this week to take a dive into, the, into this shifting trend is Catherine Mandler, Head of Advocacy and Research at Your Town. In her role, Catherine leads advocacy, data analytics, innovation, performance, evaluation and research functions. She was previously the inaugural Head of the National Office for Child Safety in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet and the Chair of the OECD Working Party on Social Policy from 2016 to 2019. Catherine has also worked for the Queensland Government as a Senior Executive in Child Protection and headed up the Office for Women. Stay tuned as Catherine delves into what young people are telling us about their help-seeking preferences and to what extent traditional models of mental health service delivery remain relevant to today's children and young people. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Catherine Mandler. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Catherine, you've done a lot already in your career professionally, but if you just want to take us back to where did it all start for you? So I grew up in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and recently had 10 lovely years in the country in a small country town called Yass, just outside of Canberra, where I worked with the Australian government for 10 years. I grew up in a family of five children. I was the big sister. I had four brothers and I was without a mother. So my family was in a horrendous car accident when I was four and my mother and her unborn sixth baby were killed back in the day when seatbelts weren't compulsory in New South Wales. Sorry to hear that. And my father was an immigrant and he'd lived through World War II and been in a refugee camp and migrated to Australia and met an Aussie girl. And he'd experienced terrible trauma in his younger years. And that trauma was compounded when my mum died. 
And that left him to care for and support five um, young children, all under the age of six. So the role of carer, defender of the vulnerable, came to me at an early age as the big sister of younger brothers. That's incredible, isn't it? uh, What country was your dad from? Poland. Wow. Wow. What a story. And sorry for your loss, obviously. I mean, that would have been really tough to go through. How has that impacted upon you? I mean, the hardworking nature of your dad, obviously, bringing up five kids at such a tough time. I mean, what was that like? Yeah, we were a really resilient family. So one of the things I learned very early on was the importance of protective factors. So having strong family support, good friends, good relatives who were there um, for you. And I also learned the importance of education and schooling and the opportunities that that brought. And my early volunteering and work experience as a student also shaped the person I am today. And one of my earliest work experience times was when I worked at then Xavier Hospital for Children back in the day when we had institutions for children with disabilities. And I remember at the time, you know, I couldn't understand why children with disability weren't in a family situation and why they were placed in institutional care. And then my next work experience was in child protection. And again, Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why we weren't doing more to support families who were struggling with poverty, homelessness, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, and why children were being taken from their families. So all of these things, I think, shaped me. And, you know, in my early uni days, you know, I was thinking of doing psychology. But then I learned more and more through my high school years about the law and how it operated. And I realised that law isn't always fair. And so I decided that I didn't want to become a lawyer to interpret the law. I actually wanted to reform the law and ensure that it was um, safe for people and wasn't doing them further harm. Wow. So what degree did you go down then? So I studied law and in my arts degree, I studied psychology and public administration. Wow. And so from there, I mean, you obviously had it in your nature that you wanted to help. I mean, those questions that you raised from those problems that you, you identified, really smart questions. How, you know, why is it this way? That propelled you into what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I think most of my working career, I've been involved in legal and policy um, reform and more recently moving to service and practice reform. I've come from a big family and with a very strong social justice. I got to witness discrimination in relation to my father. I have a husband who's also an immigrant. And so these early experiences have really shaped me to want to sort of make things better and actually make a difference in the world and try to be the best that we possibly can as a nation. Some of the issues that you brought up earlier, you know, with homelessness and people with disabilities and the lack of opportunities with them to to live with the families. I mean, there's some pretty key challenges that are going on. There's, they're big ones and they're not easily solved. How do you feel we're going with some of these issues that you've identified years ago? Yeah, it, it's interesting because these issues um, are all interrelated and they keep coming up, you know, again and again in the social policy and social reform arena. Another role I had many years ago when I was a uni student was working in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Back in the day when we had, you know, an extensive array of resident young people who were recovering from substance misuse. And hearing the stories of young people, many of them had been involved in the child protection system, had come from broken families marred by domestic and family violence, 
and um, they were really sad stories. And I realised that a lot of these social issues, poverty, homelessness, the lack of affordable housing, difficulties, you know, for families with disability and mental health issues and getting a job all impacted on young people and potentially shaped their life trajectories and chances in life. And I really did believe and always have believed that I could make a difference. And back in my early years, was working one-on-one with younger people as a youth worker while I was still a student. And then I decided that I wanted to have much more macro um, influence and really try to change, you know, laws, policies, systems, you know, and ensure we had adequate services, you know, for people who were suffering hardship. Wow. And what an opportunity to go in there and inflict change on such important things facing Australians. How do you feel? Is, has it been more frustrating than it has been rewarding or do you feel like it's actually been pretty rewarding through that process so far? It's been enormously rewarding. You know, I was just reflecting before I came here today, Sam, I don't think I've ever had a job that I didn't like, where I didn't learn um, something and where I couldn't find a way to influence. And people are motivated by different things. For me, the motivation has always been to accept a challenge, to make a difference and to have an impact on, on people's lives. And the more you do it, the more you sort of work how systems work, how governments work and the ways to exercise, you know, influence, you know, not always in an overt way, sometimes, you know, a bit more behind the scenes, you know, to shape reform agendas. And it's also about picking the timing to know, you know, when the agenda's right to bring in, you know, large-scale systemic and transformational um, change. And particularly, you know, I think now in the wake of, COVID, this enormous opportunity um, for change, you know, in relation to how we deliver mental health services throughout Australia. Well said. Tell us about Your Town. Okay, so Your Town is one of Australia's largest youth charities. Um, We're probably best known for our flagship program, Kids Helpline, which is a national 24-7 counselling and support um, service available to children and young people aged between 5 and 25 years. We also provide youth um, employment services, education services, early childhood development services, expressive um, therapy for children impacted by trauma and a vast array of other child and family programs, including accommodation parents at risk and um, families escaping domestic violence. You guys do a lot of stuff. I mean, most people probably know you for giving away houses and, and stuff like that with raffles and, and the, the great stuff you do with that. But I mean, that's, that's a lot of work that you guys are doing, especially in this five to 25 year old year age group. How have you seen in the time that you've been with them, how are you seeing the services evolve? How are you seeing? Your town's been around for about 60 um, years and Kids Help Line for 31 years. And one of the things I really love about your town is that it's always innovative. It's looking for what young people want and we're continuously adapting and responding to the needs of of the clients we serve, you know, children, young people and families experiencing hardship. And I think that to be part of an organisation, as you said, fuelled by the art unions and the generosity of um, the public, we're in um, one of those rare situations where 60% of our funding is actually raised by art unions. So it provides us with a certain degree of independence. 
And, you know, we're not constrained by numerous funding agreements that limit what we can do. We can actually think a little bit outside of the box and actually look at, you know, what do our clients need? What's the best model for service delivery? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's so great to see the amount of services you guys are providing. Tell me about some of the statistics, that, especially lately, as, as it looks to COVID. Yeah. So COVID has been a real game changer uh, for our services, particularly Kids Helpline. So we've seen some unprecedented shifts um, in demand. So I think over 400,000 children and young people have reached out to us since COVID um, struck in 2019. We have delivered in 2021, just last year alone, 177,000 contacts to Kids Helpline have been responded to. And the other thing that we're seeing is that the severity of issues has actually increased. So in the past, in our, in our history, most of children and young people who are reaching out to Kids Helpline were after information and referral services and other non-counselling uh, contacts. And for the first time in our history, that trend has shifted and we find we're having not only more counselling contacts than non-counselling contacts from children, but we're finding children and young people are requiring much more ongoing counselling for more severe mental health and other presentations. And when we say that the severity of issues that children are presenting is being more complex, is it? are we looking at multifactorial things that are contributing to the, their mental health position or ill health? Are we, is it multifaceted? Is it, is it, is it co- comorbid things that are presenting? I mean, what, what's happening with that? Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a bit of everything that you've um, just said. So we're finding more emergency responses have been um, required. So looking at last year, we had an almost 200% increase in our emergency responses. And by that I mean when a child or a young person is at imminent risk of harm and requires a police, ambulance or child protection uh, intervention. So that's taking up more of our um, counsellors' time because we hold those young people on the line or the web chat or the email to keep them safe until we can get to them. We've also found that young people are presenting with more severe mental health presentations. And I've always said that Kids Helpline is the canary in the coal mine. We're the safety net for the um, you know, child and youth mental health system uh, in Australia. But as we're seeing demand and pressures in other service systems, such as, you know, mental health and child protection, more and more of those young people are coming directly. We noticed that throughout the lockdowns, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, we saw huge spikes in demand. And a lot of it is just due to very practical reasons. So... When children stop going to school, we know that school staff, um, particularly teachers, are often notifiers of child abuse. And so when they're not being seen by their teachers and no one in an official capacity is responding to them, we're finding more and more of those children and young people are contacting us at Kids Helpline because they're incredibly distressed and they're, you know, looking for someone, you know, to help them and get them out of a very situation. We know that when face-to-face services closed back in 2020 when COVID started. You know, people weren't used to a virtual services um, model of service delivery. So a lot of the face-to-face services took a while to work out how they would maintain, you know, their business continuity. And so a lot of young people who couldn't see their psychiatrist or their psychologist turned to us because, again, 
in deep distress, they were looking um, for a service that was available to respond to them. And we've also noticed children in regional, rural and remote areas that often don't have a lot of services and in some areas don't have any face-to-face services. You know, 28% of young people who contact us are from regional, rural and remote Australia. So you know, as services close in those areas, as we experience mental health staff shortages there, again, they're reaching out to the safety net, you know, the 24-7 um, helpline that's available to them. When you look at the different avenues of help people can get through Kibbs Helpline, what's the most effective form of delivery? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, question. You know, there's a lot of varying views across the mental health sector in this space. At the end of the day, we've always responded to what children and young people tell us that they want and what their preferred mode of service delivery um, is. And if you just um, indulge me, just looking at Kids Helpline history, you know, back in the 1990s, it was a free call from a dial-up phone booth that afforded them you know, that privacy and, and confidentiality. And then we moved to online real-time, you know, web counselling, web chat and email. And what we found, particularly during COVID, we saw a huge spike in young people contacting us via web chat. And we're predicting that by 2023, it will be young people's preferred modality for seeking um, help and counselling support. So they tell us, children and young people tell us, the reason why they absolutely love web chat is that it affords them privacy, confidentiality, they feel safe and they don't feel judged. And discreet, I guess, as well, if they're in a, a yeah. setting that they can't get privacy. Absolutely. And particularly during lockdown, you know, family relationship issues, child abuse and domestic violence, you know, are right up there in our top five issues that young people contact us on. And so you can do web chat very quietly in a bathroom, in your bedroom, without, you know, the risk of someone overhearing you and potentially, you know, exposing you to further harm. As we look at where Kids Helpline sits on the the continuum, I guess, Mm -hmm. between cause and effect, Obviously, there seems to be, you're at the end of it, right? So you're getting the point of which something's gone horribly wrong or they're, they're, the way that their mental state's not the, not the best, but as a result of an event or it could be a result of systemic failures that are happening that's causing them to ring you guys. How are you seeing that play out as regards to what the challenges are that these kids are facing that they're coming to you at the last resort to say, hey, nothing else has worked or no one's listening, what's, what's that like? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because a lot of people confuse Kids Helpline with a crisis response service. So there's no criteria for children and young people for contacting Kids Helpline. And when we talk to young people about mental health services, we get the feedback that they say for other services. I'm told I'm not unwell enough, you know, it's not severe enough or, you know, it's not moderate enough for this service. Wow. We actually don't have um, a benchmark or any limitations on the issues that a young person can contact us on. So they can call us up for information or a referral to another more potentially more specialist service, get one-off advice about school, relationships um, and, mm. and friendships, talk to us about bullying, you know, right through to ongoing counselling where we might hold them 
while they're waiting five months. You know, we're seeing a blowout in wait times for a lot of mental health services. So Kids Helpline often holds young people until they can access face-to-face service and right through to that crisis um, response. However, as I mentioned before, what we're seeing, and particularly since COVID, much more crisis response. What sort of shift are we talking with numbers? Are we like 20%, 40% in crisis? Is there any broad statistic yeah. around that? So with crisis response, I mentioned the 200% increase um, last year in what we call a, an emergency or duty of care response where we're contacting ambulance, police or child protection. We've seen an increase in um, young people presenting with suicidal ideation or undertaking a suicide uh, attempt. Child abuse has gone up. And one of the, on a lighter note, it's always um, good to look for something optimistic in the statistics during the school closures when young people were doing schooling from home, we actually saw quite a significant decrease in bullying, which was, you know, a great thing, less face-to-face contact. um, And, you know, we're finding that that online learning actually provides another level of um, safety for children um, and young people. It doesn't work for all of them. The impact on bullying was was quite significant. So there was no increase in the impact or, or the bullying challenges that kids were facing through digital, through virtual bullying? We didn't see too much change in the cyberbullying statistics. Where we did see a significant change when we looked at all issues types that young people were presenting with was definitely in the mental health area. So we're looking at now mental health issues and emotional wellbeing issues Mm. are right up there about 54% of all issues that young people contact us on. Wow. Well, that's amazing. How much of it is how much of it is it due to the environment of COVID versus a system or like a systemic problem? It's a bit of both, and I think the two are inextricably linked. Okay. I think COVID has exacerbated um, some of the pressures that were already in existence you know, in the mental health system across Australia. What it has also done, we also know that families facing hardship, people losing um, parents, for example, losing jobs, school, um, closing down, online learning, all those key events such as formals, you know, that home, social home contact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Homeschooling would have sent a lot of parents pretty... <laughs> you know, and it's created a lot of pressure um, yeah. for families. And in the early days of COVID, we were getting a lot of young people calling us really fearful about COVID. That seems to have tapered off and that's manifest- man- manifesting more, you know, issues around emotional well-being, feeling anxious, feeling uncertain about the world tell us about gen z's and alphas i've never heard of alpha so i'm I'm a bit behind the ball there but (laughs) who are these groups of people so the young people who fall within the range of kids helpline generations alpha and z and they're really digitally literate yeah so you know every generation that comes you know grows up learning more and more about the online world. They're savvy with the internet. They're savvy at finding things. And their preferred modes of communication, very, very different um, from ours. And I was having a laugh with a friend recently. Um, one of my sons has a lovely girlfriend who likes to communicate with me when she wants advice via text. And my fingers can't keep up with her. And I end up getting my son to do the texting um, for me. And we can have a really long... 40-minute advisory session, 
Whereas I prefer to pick up the phone and have a chat. Young people today are feeling much more comfortable having these text conversations. The other thing we're finding is that they use social media in different ways than we use it. So uh, I'm hearing more and more Facebooks for older people like me. You know, they're using Snapchat for this, Instagram for that. And so there's a smorgasbord of ways that young people are communicating online. And it's a saying that we have at your town that we need to meet young people where they're at. And so at the moment, we're going through a major digital transformation for your town, moving beyond just phone, web chat and as modalities for contacting Kids Helpline and looking at social media and how we can make Kids Helpline much more omni-channel so that um, no matter where they're contacting us from, they can get access to a counsellor and a counselling service. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it, to have to reach the people that need it. You've got to be where they are. And seeing that shift, it's great that you guys are adapting and the agility for you guys to sit there and say, well, let's get on these platforms because this is where they are. So that's incredible. So that, that change is happening with your town, is it, or with Kids Helpline, sorry? Absolutely, absolutely. So we're doing a major digital transformation that's going to impact all areas of uh, your town, right through across our service um, suite, our finances, our HR, HR area, my area, the advocacy, the way we collect um, and analyse data. And again, that's been driven by what our clients, what children, young people and um, parents are telling us uh, that they um, need. And we're also looking more and more at human-centred design Mm. of our services and programs. And I think we move beyond those days where we consult with clients and services to looking at true co-design, so understanding what their needs are, what their aspirations are, working with them to map their ideal service journey and having scaffolding or supports in place at every step of that journey so you know they're not negatively you know impacted along the way and that's probably the most exciting um, part of our transformation as we you know are starting to reinvent what does success actually look like in the eyes of those we serve. Yeah that co-design point you mentioned is important and but it sounds like you guys are well down the path taking on board the design of your programs and the ways that people can reach you with the people that need to, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Having said that, you know, there's no such thing as best practice, only better practices. So we're continuously finding new ways that children, young people and the adults, you know, experiencing hardship that we serve, how they can connect and influence, self-advocate and shape how we deliver our services. And are you looking at any models or any research internationally as well? Is there anyone in any country that's doing this better than others or are we quite leading? Yeah, I think when it comes to helplines, the kids' helplines, you know, right up there amongst the, the top rank helplines internationally. So we're told, you know, when we all get together and have a chin wag with all the other countries um, who delivered who deliver children's helplines. I think you pick out pockets of excellence across a range of organisations. So some organisations are really good at working with young people with lived experience and, and that's another area I think we need to look more closely at because we can learn a lot about best practice and how we should be delivering our services by talking um, to those and working with those who actually have lived experience and know what a suboptimal Um, experience feels like but they also have aspirations for what a better service should actually look like that's an important point 
tell us about do you think the events of COVID have really accelerated the point at which people or kids were were more willing to seek help online versus like do you think otherwise it would have taken us a decade to get there or do you think this they were doing it anyway and it really just supported the framework you obviously already had it in place but I just wonder about that if 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 COVID brought about that acceleration. Yeah, I think there, there were already trends uh, occurring, but particularly the move to virtual services was definitely accelerated by COVID. And, you know, remember those first few months um, back in 2020 and mm-hmm. everyone was scurrying around trying to work out, you know, what to do. We're in lockdown. How do we, you know, deliver appointments and services to our clients? And it Everyone was working out, you know, how to use um, Zoom and, you know, turn your mic on and yeah. we can't hear you. <laughs> and I think we're, we're gradually becoming better at that. How we actually deliver our services. So working flexibly, we've learned that we can work from home. We've also learned that, you know, virtual services for many young people, they're really enjoying that virtual service experience And unlike many other organisations that didn't have that virtual services component in place, it was actually a bit easier for us to scale up with the increased demand that COVID brought because we already had a service model that was a virtual service model and we just had to make adjustments to deal, bring in additional counsellors and staff to support the significant increase in volume. So some other organisations really struggled with trying to work out how to do this whole virtual thing, how, you know, what does it look like and work like in the mental health um, space? You know, how do you do web chat virtual counselling? How do you communicate and potentially deliver counselling via email or, or phone whereas we've been doing that for years so it was a little bit easier yeah no you're certainly well positioned to to have a smooth transition smoother i should say than most organizations i guess that were a bit behind as we look to the wants versus provision of mental health system for children and young people what they want and what's provided for them is a bit bit of a gap is that what we've just spoken about as it relates to virtual messaging type things rather than the in-person on the phone. Is that what we're talking about there? Or are we talking about a more of a system approach? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I think there's that's part of it, um, what young people um, want and their preferences. And virtual services, have there's still a place for face, a very important place, I might add, for face-to-face services. So we see the virtual services as a complement to face-to-face services because they afford clients much more choice and control about how they communicate. And for those who might feel a bit more uncomfortable about reaching out for help, it affords much more privacy, confidentiality. Young people tell us they don't feel they're being judged when they're communicating via web chat because they're not listening to the tone in someone's voice and misinterpreting it. It's just a very bland way of communicating and they can exit that at any time. When they don't feel they need counselling, they can come back again. So I think it's part of it, but then there's a broader piece that's informed by, again, what young people have told us. And increasingly they're telling us that they want mental health services that don't feel like mental health services where they can reach out at any time, 
where they've got that flexibility where sometimes, you know, when you've got appointments booked in here from month to if they're having a crisis midway through, taking that customer service approach and maybe reaching out, you know, how are you going ahead of our next appointment? How often do we do reach out in mental health services? And with technology today, you know, there are systems that you can use that actually help you connect, you know, that's, you know, generate, you know, texts and emails to check in on on patients or clients, you know, just to see how they're going. And often that can actually make people feel a lot better, you know. So-and-so's checking um, up on me and, yeah, I do need a bit of extra help at this time. And, you know, having those options to be able to get a bit of extra support or be referred to another service that might be able to support them at a particular point in time. It's really interesting that, and I think it's a great opportunity for us to do a better job, certainly as, as far as the sector goes. If you look at where where we're landing now and where we need to be at moving forward, how excited are you for the future and and what things we've got coming up? Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm an eternal optimist and uh, I think there's enormous um, opportunity to continuously improve mental health. And one of the most important trends, you know, I'd like to see occur is that often mental health is viewed through a negative uh, lens. You know, we don't talk about as much about mental well-being, resilience, you know, how do we grow strong, resilient children and young people uh, in Australia and how do we equip them with the resources that they need um, for self-help to become the best that they possibly um, can be. So I think there's great potential to start to look at a much more positive narrative around individual and family well-being and how we actually work in the mental health system, working more holistically with families and empowering families to make the right um, choices that are actually good for their well-being. Okay, well that sounds good that you're excited about the future because it can only get better. Do you feel like there's... What do you think are going to be some of the key challenges coming up? Yeah. I think the key challenge, and particularly in the wake of COVID, people are getting a sense of complacency. They're thinking the worst of COVID is over. We've had two years. Remember that one year when we thought at the end of this, it's all going to be okay. And then we had 2021 came and it was more of the same. And often we find with mental health issues and emotional well-being, there is that lag, um, that series of unfortunate events and cumulative um, trauma and adverse experiences. So I think the challenge is to not drop the bat too early and to continue to support our um, young people. Another challenge that I think also presents an opportunity is to look at the things that didn't work so well during COVID and to really spend some time as a collective um, community involved in the mental health space to look at lessons learned and opportunities for improvement. Many years ago, I used to work in emergency services in Queensland and I was amazed at their approach to disaster management. And Australia is held up as one of the leading countries in relation to disaster management. You know, the Americans like to come out and mm. see how we responded to a cyclone because, you know, hardly anyone died and they have one over there and lots of people die. And it's because we do a great deal of 
planning. Yeah, we plan around being prepared. How do we mitigate for an adverse, you know, disaster or crisis? How do we respond and how do we recover? And I think to meet the challenge in the future, you know, there could be another COVID, we've had, we've had bushfires, and to actually do that planning as a mental um, health system to say, are we planning for the next disaster? You know, what happened? How much did demand increase? So, you know, we've got the trends and the data. We can tell you that, you know, initially you're going to have to increase services by 30% because that's going to be your, your peak and sometimes you know, that'll spike up to about 45% um, um, increase in demand. And then over time, we'll know that'll plateau out, but you can probably look at about a 20% increase over a two-year period. So we've got to get better at predicting and planning based on past experiences and what we learned. I think there's a huge, and no one will dispute me on this, around workforce. Yeah, we've all been talking about the challenges of the mental health uh, workforce and, you know, We've got large mental health um, strategies coming out federally and by state and territory jurisdictions. And the question people are asking is where is the workforce mm. um, going to come from? You know, we're committing funding to these things. And so I think that in itself is a challenge, but the opportunity is for us to think much more innovatively and laterally to see how can we expedite, you know, the emerging workforce of the, the future? You know, how do we engage with students at high school who might want a career in counselling and psychology or social work, how do we give them that real-life work experience? You know, should we be looking at cadetships, internships, traineeships? You know, how do we make that experience a pathway to a career later on? And then at the other end, you know, when people retire, we've got an ageing population in Australia We've got a significant amount of skills and capabilities and knowledge at the other end, people who might have been recently retired from counselling, psychologist roles. How are we engaging with that broader alumni to bring them back when we are going through crises and, and disasters, you know, to help boost our workforce, you know, during times that are really tough? We saw that done with nursing, didn't we? We did indeed. Yeah. And it makes sense, doesn't it, to try and plan for those situations because they're going to happen. It's not if, but it's a matter of when, right? Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, I really, really enjoyed that. What else is, it, other than the rollout of the, the other digital platforms that you've got coming up, what other exciting things is uh, Kids Helpline, your town, doing? So Kids Helpline, there's always exciting things happening with Kids Helpline. You know, we'll be looking at our wait list and, you know, how we can engage with young people while they're waiting in the queue to get a response from um, Kids Helpline. And the other opportunity is we have one of the most popular websites in Australia with Kids Helpline. It's got an enormous array of resources for children, young people, parents, teachers and carers and looking at how young people navigate and seek help and how can we engage with them at that stage? You know, how can we use AI and machine learning to make their experience of our website much more personalised and tailor-made um, for them? And I think using machine learning and artificial intelligence for good to provide much more customised, tailored services for young people is an enormous opportunity and I might add, particularly for boys, mm. so 75% of young people contacting Kids Helpline are female, 20% are male, and 5% are gender diverse. 
And we've traditionally had a problem with boys and help seeking and reaching out. And we've done some recent research with Swinburne University to find out um, why boys aren't seeking help. So we've got a lot of work happening at your town to better understand their help-seeking preferences. They tend to go to friends, their mum, an intimate partner, dads there around forth. But we're not seeing them identifying formal and professional support services as their go-to places. They use music to make them feel better for emotional regulation. So, you know, there's some really real opportunities to, again, look at our service model and think how can we better engage with those hard to hard to reach groups who have you know different ways of of seeking help or trying to resolve problems and what we're hearing increasingly from boys and young men is that we've got to find ways to engage much earlier on and again meet them where where they're at and in the modalities that they prefer to engage with beautifully said but that's exciting too, I mean, with where that's all heading. And, and it sounds like you've got a great team there as well, working with you behind the scenes and on the front line. So congratulations on the work you've done. Catherine, if people want to get hold of you, how would they? How can they get in contact with your town? Or Yep, uh, they can get in contact with your town via our website. There's options for getting in contact with us. People can reach out to me via LinkedIn. I'm very responsive on uh, LinkedIn. And the best way that um, people can support our organisation is via our art unions. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most enormous feelings of satisfaction with our organisation is that every day mums and dads, young people, older people, retirees, they want to give back and they support us via the art unions. And all that money goes to Fueling, Kids Helpline, Parent Line and all of our other services and programs for children and families. Sounds fantastic. Catherine, thanks so much for your time. It's been really interesting hearing about all the things you, you've done in your career so far, but the wonderful things also that you're up to with Your Town and Kids Helpline. Wish you all the best for the future, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of stuff happening with you guys and can't wait to see it all roll out. Yep, we'll make sure you're well aware of it. It'll be out there on our website and in our promotional material. Thank you so much, Sam. No worries. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.